Welcome to the Land of Goshen podcast. This is where you can hear the latest sermons from Goshen Presbyterian Church in Belmont, North Carolina, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. For more information on Goshen Presbyterian Church, please visit GoshenPCA.com. That's GoshenPCA.com. Our reading this morning is 2 Samuel 17, 2 Samuel chapter 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him when he is weary and exhausted and terrify him, so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone, and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek, then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus, Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare, and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when he falls on them at the first attack, that whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom, and even the one who is valiant whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea in abundance, and that you personally go into battle. So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground, And of him and all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it into the valley until not even a small stone is found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and to Abiathar the priests, This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I have counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means cross over, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel, and a maidservant would go and tell them, And they would go and tell King David, for they could not be seen entering the city. But a lad did see them and told Absalom. So the two of them departed quickly and came to the house of a man in Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, so that nothing was known. 
Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have crossed the brook of water. And when they searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. It came about after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus Ahithophel is counseled against you. Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ithra the Israelite, who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now when David had come to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd, for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Well, as you know, I'm something of a history buff. I do enjoy a good historical documentary, and of course I enjoy a good historical drama, because let's face it, history is interesting, but Hollywood has a way of making it seem even more interesting. And I really enjoy the movie Valkyrie. If you've never seen it, look, it's history, there's a little bad language. I know it's dangerous recommending movies from the pulpit, but I love it. I think it's great. Uh, every time I watch it, it's the story of the last German plot to kill Hitler. And every time I'm like, oh, come on, this time it's going to work. Surely it was such a good plan. Like history's going to change or something. It ought to have worked. There's one dramatic moment in the movie. All German communication was being routed through a single communications hub, at least in the film's telling of the story. They're getting orders from the conspirators who are now functionally in charge of the Third Reich, they're also getting orders from Hitler, whom they had not assassinated, he lived. And for a while, the communication center doesn't know who to believe. Is Hitler dead or is he alive? Which one is the liar? Who is trying to steal power? So for a while, they're sending out messages from everybody. And finally, the scene comes where basically the head of communications is told, look, when this is over, you're going to be held responsible if you're sending the wrong messages. You aren't neutral. You can't be. Now, whose messages do we send? Now, this is the pivotal moment because the German army will listen to whichever orders they're receiving. If he sends out the conspirators' orders, 
It doesn't matter that Hitler is alive. The German army is about to be under the control of the conspirators, and they will run the show, and eventually they will kill Hitler, which is the ending you keep hoping for, and you keep thinking, come on! If he sends out Hitler's orders, then the conspiracy is over as of that moment. He says, send the orders that say Hitler's alive. That's the side we're going to go with. In that one moment, his decision was going to establish one party and frustrate the other. And he knew that. He knew that was the decision he had to make. God, from all of eternity, has made his decision. He knows what he is doing. He knows the purpose he is carrying out. And what we see in this passage is that God frustrates the world, but he establishes his Christ. God frustrates the world, but he establishes his Christ. First, we see how God frustrates the world, and we see why he frustrates the world. Notice in verse 25, we have this almost throwaway detail. Absalom said Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Well, I assume he put somebody in charge in place of Joab. Joab's with David. But it goes on, now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ithra the Israelite, very interesting, I'm sure, who went in to Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. Joab's cousin. Why would you appoint the cousin of the other commander to be your present commander? Because you're keeping it in the family. Remember, everything Absalom has done up to this point served one purpose, and this continues to serve that purpose because he is trying to usurp David. He is trying to put himself forward as the legitimate successor to David, the one who should be in the place of David. He is of the line of David, and his commander is of the line of Joab. He's saying, look, I'm a perfect replica. I am the perfect replacement. And the world is trying to usurp Christ. The world is trying to usurp Christ, that spirit of Antichrist that is trying to present itself and say, I am the legitimate successor. I am the one you should be looking to. I am the one who can do for you what this Jesus says he'll do. Absalom is still trying to grasp what David has. But God says, no. Christ means anointed one. God anointed David. He did not anoint Absalom. God has anointed Jesus to be the Christ. He has anointed no other. And therefore, anyone who tries to take the place of Christ must experience God's frustration. The first frustration they experience is God replaces their wisdom with foolishness. 
Ahithophel was right. Ahithophel had the common grace of intelligence and wisdom and knowledge, and his counsel was spot on. He's saying, Absalom, look, the whole war is really about one guy, David. If I go out tonight with about 12,000 men, that's not a big group, but let's get them. I can chase down your father while he is tired and weary, and I can kill him, just him. And I'll bring back Joab. I'll bring back the court. I'll bring back the supporters, all the people, and then Absalom. There's no other contender for the throne. Nobody can stand against you. You won. Israel will be at peace. That's what would have happened. But they listen to Hushai, who says, because he's on David's side, well, no, 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 that's not what you should do at all. Wait, get overwhelming force, then go against him. And everyone listens to him. You see, God will not let his good gifts be used against him. He has given to all intelligence and knowledge and reason. Even fallen man has that. But every time mankind plots against God, every time mankind tries to set themselves against God, he frustrates that work by handing them over to foolishness. We see this in Romans 1, where it is demonstrated that as people begin to turn away from God and worship the creature rather than the Creator, their minds become more and more depraved. We see this in the study of philosophy. Philosophy has put forward some really, really weird ideas. Do you know when philosophy was at its heyday? At least in my opinion. I admit I'm biased. The Middle Ages. Because you know who was doing philosophy in the Middle Ages? Christians. Philosophy became the province of the church and they based their thinking on the Bible. And they began teaching sound thinking. Then came the Enlightenment and they set aside the Bible. And now philosophers aren't even sure there's a truth to be found. People, that's ridiculous. God will turn the wisdom of this world into foolishness because no one is going to get the upper hand on God. By the way, if you're ever doing evangelism and you're worried, well, what if I say something and somebody comes against me with an answer smarter than me? Look, they may be smarter than you, but they're not smarter than God. And God can turn all their arguments to absolute rubbish, because they are absolute rubbish anyway, and speak through you. Don't worry about what you can do. Worry about what God can do. Which is to say, don't worry at all, because He can do anything. Not only do we see God turning the wisdom of the world to foolishness, but He turns their self-confidence into fear of Christ. Ahithophel's like, look, we got the men, David's tired, we can go get him. Then Hushai comes in, he's like, all right, what do I do? Make David the boogeyman. This is the guy who killed Goliath. 
This is the guy who kills Philistines. And remember when he killed Goliath? He had Goliath's sword in one hand, a giant sword, and the giant's head in the other hand, running around the battlefield like a crazy guy. He's got his mighty men with him, one of whom killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Slippery ground, disadvantage, he killed a lion! You want to go against that guy? Without overwhelming odds? Don't you want to wait and secure your position? Don't you want to think about it a little bit? And suddenly Absalom and the elders of Israel are like, maybe, maybe we don't attack him tonight. Maybe we stand back. Fear of Christ. This continues to happen. Think about it in the book of Acts when they were about to execute the apostles. And Gamaliel stands up and he says, guys, think about this. We've had a lot of uprisings and false Christs come around and all of it died out on its own. If you kill these men, you could be found to be fighting against God. And suddenly, even the Pharisees became afraid. Should we fight this? Should we fight this? It used to be in our country, you didn't lock church doors. Do you know why? Because every thief was afraid to steal from a church. It used to be when I was growing up, we didn't even lock our cars when we parked in the church parking lot until the police told us to stop that because thieves had gotten smart and were going to churches specifically to steal from cars. For a while, there was a fear of Christ that kept people in line. We need to understand God can put the fear of himself in anyone. And if people are trying to oppose Christ, God will turn them back and give us the victory. God also frustrates the world by placing his Christ beyond their reach. Notice Hushai very wisely doesn't stand on his victory. He basically declares, look, David, I have counseled that they should not go against you right now. But just in case they change their minds, leave. Get across the Jordan. Get away now, David. By the end of the night, there is not a single man of David's camp left on that side of the Jordan. They have all escaped. Look at the life of Jesus. When the people came against him and were ready to throw him off of a cliff, what did he do? Just walked through the crowd and disappeared. When they sent the guards to arrest him, the guards came back with no Jesus. Well, where's Jesus? Look, nobody ever talked like this man. God kept him out of their reach. The world cannot get a hold of Jesus. Every time they try, it doesn't work. One time they thought they got a hold of him. One time they thought they were in charge because they put him on a cross and he died. 
What they didn't understand is what he told his apostles, that he was not going to be killed. He was going to lay down his life willingly. That's why he even died before they expected it. They were like, surely no one's dead now. I mean, that's not how crucifixion works. He gave up the ghost. They did not take it from him. But even then, they were like, we got him. Mission accomplished. Three days later, gentlemen, we are back to square one because we have determined he is not, in fact, dead anymore. How can he not be dead anymore? Dead's kind of a permanent thing. Apparently not for him. He has walked out of his tomb. He is alive. He is not dead. And therefore, there is literally nothing we can do to him. The best they could do was lie and say that his body had been stolen. The world can't touch Jesus Christ. They simply cannot. This means that God frustrates them to the point of utter despair. Notice Ahithophel. This is a man without hope. He had wisdom, he had knowledge, and he knew what their not taking his advice meant. It meant they were not going to win. It meant that David was going to return triumphant. It meant that David was going to judge those who had opposed him. It meant Ahithophel was already as good as dead. He goes back to his own house. He sets his affairs in order. And he ends his life. The world looks ahead and knows that there is no hope. The devil looks ahead and knows there is no hope. There is only judgment. There is only punishment. There is only destruction for those who stand against Christ, but for Christ, there is hope. Because just as God frustrates the world, so God establishes his Christ. First, we see that God does bring judgment upon his enemies. Christ has to win because God has promised he will judge all those who oppose him. We turn to the book of Revelation. Christ rides in on a white horse. He subdues all his enemies. And with all the authority of the Father handed over to him, he judges them for their crimes that they have committed against him. It is God the Father who raised the Son back from the dead. It is God the Father who providentially kept Christ out of the hands of the crowds. God simply will not let anyone touch his Son. It is also God who sets His Christ in a position of safety, delivering Him from the power of the world. Notice something. We're told in this text that David has established himself at Mahanaim. That didn't ring a bell with me either till I read a note. Mahanaim was the old capital under Ishbosheth, David's old rival for the throne. That was Ishbosheth's capital. It was a place of security. It was a place of defense. And not only that, but from what we can tell, it appears that all the areas that Israel controlled across the Jordan 
supported David. They were on his side. David is now in a position to be surrounded by people who are for him, and he is in a position where he has solid walls and gates to protect him. David has been established in security. Think about Christ. God has given him the angels to serve him from eternity. He's given him his people to carry out his will on earth. He's raised him from the dead. He has brought him up in his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. And he has put him as king over a kingdom that is not of this world. Christ is secure now and forever. God has also secured the reign of Christ over His people, over His enemies, and even over the world. At the end of this passage, three men show up. We're told about Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim. Again, three men, what's important about them? In my research, I found out this. First off, we have Barzillai the Gileadite. We'll go from backward or from the last to the first. Barzillai was an Israelite who lived in Gilead, the area across the Jordan that was still Israelite territory. They had conquered it under Moses, and God said certain people could settle there, even though it wasn't part of the promised land. This is a sign that David still reigns over God's people. All of Israel on the other side of the Jordan may be with Absalom, but David is still king and there are people who follow him. Even when all the world and all the church seems to have abandoned Christ, there is always a remnant. In the darkest days of Roman Catholicism, there were still preachers of the gospel. In the darkest days of liberalism, there are preachers of the gospel. In the darkest days of worldliness, there will be preachers of the gospel. We see in the middle, Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. That's the one who took care of Mephibosheth when he was a child, before he was brought to David. This is a man who could be seen as supporting the house of Saul. And we've just seen the house of Saul is taking this opportunity to make trouble for David. You would think this man would be making trouble for David, but he's bringing him supplies and provision assigned to David. Don't worry about those who oppose you. You still reign over your enemies. This is but a taste, David. As this man submits to you, so all the house of Saul, all those who oppose you, even Absalom and his army will submit to you. Don't worry. So Christ, even now, he has many enemies, but he reigns on high and he rules over them. Then first in this list, finally in our looking we are told of Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. An Ammonite. Not just any Ammonite. Nahash was the king of Ammon. Remember him? He died. David's men went to pay their condolences and were insulted, their beards cut off, their clothing cut. 
David fought against them. This is a man of that royal house. You would expect him to be rebelling against David, getting his independence, taking you know, oppor- this opportunity given to him of chaos in Israel to establish the Ammonites as an independent nation, whereas right now they're a tributary nation. They have to pay money to Israel. David is their overlord, and instead... He shows up, this man of the royal house of the Ammonites, with supplies and food to pledge his ongoing support and allegiance to David, the king of Israel, the true king of Israel. And God is showing David, don't worry, David, you rule your people, you rule your enemies, you rule over the world. I have not changed my plans for you, David. And God has guaranteed that Jesus Christ will reign over all creation. There is coming a day when Christ will come back to this earth and He will reign here forever and ever. It may be saying, Pastor, you've told me an awful lot about Jesus, but what's this got to do with me? Bring it home. Give me an application. Granted, we do need an application. It is good to be reminded of how great Jesus is and how wonderful He is, but what are we supposed to do about it? Your security depends entirely on who you belong to. Your security depends entirely on who you belong to. You see, everyone on earth belongs either to Jesus or to the world. Everything you do is either for Jesus or for the world. If you belong to the world, you have to be frustrated. Your end is sure. You cannot succeed because the world is under the punishment of God and will face frustration and failure. There is no hope for the world. And when we as believers walk away from Jesus and try to act in worldly interests, whatever action we take is going to fail. David tried that and look where he is. God's still with him, but he is in Mahanaim, not Jerusalem. Sleeping with Bathsheba, not such a good idea. Killing Uriah, definitely not a good idea. We understand whatever we do trying to establish ourselves in this life, this life is passing away. But if you belong to Jesus, there is hope. Not hope in the sense of I wish or I want, but hope in the sense of I look forward to what is settled. That Jesus does reign, Jesus shall reign, and His victory is my victory. Just as He is beyond the reach of the world, so in Him I am beyond the reach of the world. The world can hurt you, yes. The world can kill you. But the world cannot take away your joy. The world cannot take away your relationship with Jesus Christ. The world cannot take away your fellowship with God the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. That is untouchable. And even if the body they do kill, His truth abideth still. 
And on the last day, we will be raised from the dead by the power of Christ. And all the martyrs in Christian history will look at their killers and go, what did you accomplish? I'm alive. What good was it? And everything we do for the sake of Christ and in His name, imperfect though our works are, will bear fruit that will last for eternity. Whatever we do for the sake of the gospel, that work will follow us even into the next life. The choice between hope and despair is not even a real choice. It's a no-brainer. Trust in Christ and find eternal security in Him. Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. We hope this sermon has been helpful to you. If you would like more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ or about Goshen Presbyterian Church, please contact us using the website goshenpca.com where you can find our email address as well as our phone number. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Goshen PCA. Please subscribe to this podcast and feel free to share the good news of Jesus Christ by sharing these episodes.